Our uh, our passage today is Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, and I'd invite you to turn there now. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Before I read it, I just want to set up a little bit of what's happening here. Um, Paul is sitting in prison, probably in Rome or in Ephesus, and he's writing a letter to a church at Philippi, and among other things, in our passage here, he is telling them how he is praying for them. And in this short, but as we'll see, very, very, very dense section of scripture, while not covering every nuance, while not saying every little thing, Paul is providing a beautiful summary of practical Christian living. And this is what he says. He prays for them, starting in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And in these two little verses, Paul is effectively summarizing what the Christian life ought to look like. He is providing, as it were, a simplified set of instructions for how to live a life pleasing to God. This is practical Christianity 101, if you, if you will. And our goal this morning is to unpack what Paul says here, phrase by phrase. And as we do, we're going to see that this prayer can be divided up rightly into five sections, with each section covering a a different essential element of the Christian life. And we're going to see that those five elements are, in order, love, wisdom, a holy life, hope, and faith. And for those of you taking notes, I'll repeat them slowly. Love, wisdom, a holy life, hope, and faith. These are the five essential elements of the Christian life we see in this prayer, and this is the outline of our time this morning. Before we jump in the text, let's say a little prayer of our own and ask for God's blessing on this morning. Father, thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to speak to this congregation through your word. I pray that as we walk through this passage, as we unpack it, Lord, that you would grant me a a loosened, articulate tongue, that it would be readily understood. And I pray, Lord, that as Pastor Tim did, that they would be soft hearts to receive this truth, that we would all see the picture that Paul is painting here, that we would fall in love with it, that we would strive for it, and that it would characterize and reflect our lives at River City Grace. I ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the very first element, as I mentioned, of the practical Christian life that we see in this prayer is that of love. Paul begins this prayer with, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And in truth, at the very heart of what Paul is praying for here is that of love. And he begins with love because love in the Christian life is primary. And we could look at a slew of texts to show that, but just a couple. In uh, Galatians 5.14, for example, Paul says that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment in the law is, and his response is love. In verses 37 to 39 of Matthew 22, he says that the two greatest commandments in order are to love God and to love one's neighbor. And then in the verse that Paul echoes in Galatians 5.14, he goes on to say that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In 1 Corinthians 13.13, Paul compares faith, hope, and love and says that the greatest of these necessary, essential Christian virtues, these necessary, essential, vital aspects of the Christian life, the greatest of them is love. In the Christian life, love is primary. In fact, really quickly, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, just real fast to see this in one more place. 1 Timothy chapter 1. In, beginning in verse 3, Paul instructs Timothy to stay on in Ephesus, to stop certain people from teaching false doctrines, and to stop them from getting distracted by made-up things that have no value. But in verse 5, he tells Timothy what really matters, love. He says there in verse 5, the aim of our charge, which I think is another way of saying the purpose of our role as leaders in the church, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is something that must characterize us as Christians. Love is the necessary fruit of faith in Christ, and it is the inevitable fruit of faith in Christ. Love is the goal of Christian teaching, Christian ministry, and Christian community. If love is not the fruit of what we're doing, we are doing something wrong. And so in keeping with this, while sitting in prison, Paul is praying for this church's capacity to love. Now, I say capacity because Paul doesn't just pray that this church loves, period, but that they love more and more and more. Now, Paul doesn't doubt that this church is a loving one. He himself is the recipient of the manifestation of their love while he's in prison through their uh, emissary, through their messenger, Epaphroditus. But Paul wants that love to deepen, to increase, to be scattered more and more abroad. He prays that their love would abound. And that word has the sense of of overflow or to be in abundance. It's often used in water context, things like that. And so he's kind of painting this picture, if I can be corny for a second, you know, of of this river of love, as it were. And the question, ultimately, for Christians is, is not, whether it's there, it it should be there, it had better be there. It's the question of how powerful is that flow? Is it a trickle? Is it a weak little stream? Or is it this roaring, powerful flow that branches off and supplies everyone downstream of it? And it's that last picture, this this powerful, roaring, life-giving river of love that Paul is praying for, for this church in verse 9. That's the goal, to ever abound in love more and more. He is praying for essentially daily growth in love. He's praying that their love would abound more in depth and range. Depth and range. And and love has both of those aspects to it. Depth refers maybe to the, the strength of our love. I can love deeply or I can love shallowly. I can, I can love you with the kind of self-sacrificial love that would lay my life down for you, or I can love you just a little bit. And range, range more refers to sort of the who that we love. I can love a select few people, or I can love a great many. I can love my parents and my wife and my children and them only, or I can have a broader circle of love. Paul is praying that 
as Christians, we ought to be growing in both, in both depth and range. The goal is not to love our family and friends with this deep sacrificial love and treat everybody else with contempt. The goal is not to have a weak, shallow, unsacrificing love for a great many people. Our goal, the aim of the Christian life, is to have an ever-deepening, ever-broadening love. And that's what Paul is praying for here. He wants this church to love those that they love with a deep, passionate, sacrificial love. And he wants this church to love more and more people that way. Paul wants, continuing my corny analogy, that whatever our respective rivers of love look like, that they increase in power and flow as we continue on in the faith. So in this first essential element of of the Christian life, Paul is praying for love. Because love is primary. But notice in verse 9, he is not praying for love alone, and that is the next element that we're going to look at together. If love is the first element that Paul prays for, the second element is that of wisdom. Paul doesn't just pray for abounding love, he prays for love with knowledge and all discernment. Now, these are crucial words, but if we're going to understand them properly in context here, we probably need to pause and just make sure that we're all on the same page as to how Paul is defining love. We are sitting here 2,000 years after this text was penned. We're sitting in a culture that has been influenced by the Bible but is now wholly divorced from it. Biblical terms and concepts are very radically redefined in our modern age, and love is probably chief among them. To the point where I'm not sure if we did a straw poll, if we'd all have the same operating definition of love in this room. So it would be good to make sure we're all on the same page with Paul here. And in my experience, there are two common misdefinitions of love, one of two basic paths that you can go down to get love wrong in our day and age. First, you can define love as strictly something that you do. Love isn't a feeling, it's an action. If I give money, I love. If I don't, I don't. Love is what I do. Alternatively, you can misdefine love as seeing that as purely a feeling, purely an emotion. Love is reduced to a happy feeling that someone has for someone, and that's it. Nothing more. And the problem with both these definitions is that they are halves of the whole. Love is absolutely emotional, but it necessarily overflows into action where warranted. I think we could biblically define love something along these lines, that love is the treasuring and delighting in someone else that results in appropriate action. Love is the treasuring and delighting in someone else that results in proper action. It is not action apart from feelings. I can hate you and do something nice for you. I can't. It's not love. And, and love is not purely emotion without action either. If I have happy feelings towards you, and I see you in need, and I shrug my, feeling, my shoulders and walk the other way, whatever I'm feeling, it's not love. Love is the treasuring and delighting in someone else that results in appropriate action. <coughs> and since, going back to our text, love overflows into action, love necessarily, therefore, involves decisions and choices. And that's where knowledge and all discernment comes in in verse 9. Now, as we look at these two words... I should begin by stating what is probably overly obvious, but I'm going to do it anyways. Loving someone, uh, treasuring them, delighting them should overflow into action, but not all actions are good. Not all actions are good. If I'm at the grocery store and my kids are pitching a fit because I didn't buy them the candy bar in the checkout aisle, love doesn't demand that I give in. Love demands that I discipline. 
And in our culture and in our day and age, this is another important point to emphasize because we aren't just encouraged to misdefine love, we are often encouraged to misapply it as well. We are told, for example, that love would never, ever result in harming someone, including, or maybe we should say especially, their feelings. If you say something that makes me upset, you're not being loving. If you offer a rebuke for my sin or, or, or tell me to repent as you present the gospel, you're judging me and you are not loving me. That, of course, is wrong. Uh, Proverbs 27.6, faithful are the words of a friend. Love demands at times we say things that are, I'm sorry, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes love demands that we say something hard. The gospel is a hard message at first, but it's hardly unloving to preach it. Now, another common misapplication of love uh, is that uh, since love should always seek the best for someone, and that's a true statement, we should always, the loving thing to do is just to encourage folks to live out whatever life choices make them happy. If, if love is seeking the best for someone, we should always be encouraging folks to live out whatever life choices make them happy. It means validating choices. It means constant support of what people do or want, even if those things end in sorrow, even if they're sinful or wrong, which is, of course, another sad lie. So not only are we encouraged to misdefine love in this day and age, we're, we're, def- we're encouraged to misapply it left and right. So how does one avoid that? How does one avoid this misapplication of love? How does one make sure that the results of our delighting and treasuring others is is God-honoring action? How do we do that? Well, we need two things. We need knowledge, and we need all discernment. And that's why Paul is praying that these come with love. We need knowledge and discernment, or what I'm collectively summarizing as wisdom. By knowledge, Paul means knowing God and his character, knowing what he approves and what he disapproves of, knowing his commands and his precepts, knowing the proverbs and the principles that he has provided us with. In order to love appropriately, I need knowledge. And I also need discernment. Uh, Another maybe more literal word for that is perception. This refers to the ability to come to a right understanding of a given situation. That's partly a function of knowledge, knowing God, sin, ourselves, the nature of this world, and the like. But it's also a function of our approach. Not rushing to judgment, avoiding prejudices, avoiding overgeneralizations. If I want to make sure that my love overflows into righteous God-honoring action, I need both of these things. Because without knowledge, I am left with what? My own preferences, my own thoughts, my own belief as to what is best or right. And without discernment, I am guaranteed to approach a situation wrong, guaranteed to perceive it incorrectly. Both of these things, knowledge and discernment, are necessary. Going back to that uh, river of love analogy, knowledge and discernment are the banks of the river. They are what keep the river from flooding and turning destructive. Abounding feelings without the guardrails of knowledge and discernment is a recipe for well-intentioned disaster. And that's, I think, what we see everywhere in our culture nowadays. This is the spirit of the age. All of the feelings, none of the wisdom. Indeed, may it ever be that our love, as it grows, is always attended by an equal growth in knowledge and discernment. And of course, to do that, 
It's going to require some effort on our part. It doesn't happen automatically. Jesus, even Jesus, was taught as a child. And discernment doesn't happen automatically either. Growth and discernment requires us to first grow in knowledge, but also requires practice. It requires application and experience. And if you want to grow in both knowledge and experience as we ought to, as Paul's praying that we do, we need to pursue them with all of our hearts. Listen to how the writer of Proverbs in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, speaks about this pursuit of wisdom. It's Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. He says, My son, if you receive my words and you treasure up my commandments with you, if you make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it, As for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Our pursuit of knowledge and discernment is not incidental. It is not without effort. It is something that we need to pursue with all of our hearts as with something precious. Because it is. It is precious. Now, brothers and sisters, with respect to knowledge, we have a book. We have a book that contains all that we need for life and godliness or is Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 3.16, we have a book that is entirely profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have a book that is the very words of God to us, and we need to be people of this book. We need to, to read it, to hear it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to study it, to apply it. We need to show up on Sunday morning ready to hear. We need to prioritize opportunities to learn like equipping hour. And we need to not neglect our own private times in the word. And we need to do this not in a formalistic or legalistic way, but with a spirit of yearning. Going back to Proverbs 2 for a second, wisdom isn't about time and attendance. You don't get wise simply by showing up and clocking hours in the Bible. No, you you call out for insight. You raise your voice for understanding. We need to care about becoming wise. We need to not be checking a box, but to pursuing uh, what we're doing in this church and in our own times in the word with the heart of someone who cares about growing in wisdom. And with respect to discernment, it takes practice and it takes experience. It takes getting in the habit of using our brains and capacities to analyze, not just being people who go with the flow or who rely on feelings or impressions. It it requires growing in self-control over our emotions that can so easily skew how we approach a situation. It requires being aware of the spirit of the age that we live in and what sort of subtle influences that can have on us. And it requires being humble, recognizing that this is a growth process and we will get it wrong from time to time. Maybe a lot along the way. And finally, it requires actively attending to good models of discernment from other godly men and women. Learning from the mistakes that that we make. uh, Learning from, from how other godly men and women approach situations. Which is why, just getting on a soapbox for a second, body life is so important. The church is the arena in which all of this growth happens. The Bible expects that we grow in our knowledge and our discernment together. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We speak, we grow. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The Christian life isn't a solo sport. It's a team activity. 
And if we want knowledge and discernment, a vital part of that is participation of formal church gatherings on Sunday mornings, of informal church gatherings, community groups, Bible studies, meals together, and the like. And, and brothers and sisters, when we, when we do this, when we marry flowing love with, with knowledge and discernment, the results are beautiful. They are absolutely beautiful. They are life-giving. They are joy-giving. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. It's exactly what Paul goes next. If our first element in this prayer is love, the second element is wisdom, the third element of the practical Christian life we see in this prayer is that of holy living. Or I think a holy life. Now, as we transition into verse 10, note that Paul begins verse 10 with the words, so that you may approve what is excellent. The words so that indicate that this is a, 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 it, there's some intentionality here. The things that came before are leading up to this. The intended result of our loving with wisdom is that we may approve what is excellent. Now, I wrestled with these words for a long time. Uh, it confused me for far longer than I would care to admit publicly right now. Um, but but after, after it clicked, after a long time, after it clicked, I began to see that Paul really means something quite beautiful here. So let me walk you through it. So the word approved um, is used quite a bit in the New Testament, and it has a, a pretty decent range of meaning. Um, sometimes it can mean just to test something. For example, in 1 Timothy 3.10, Paul uses this, words with, uh, this word with respect to deacons. He says, let them be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. It means, it means to test something. It can also refer to the outcome of testing. Uh, or, or the outcome evaluation, a decision that someone makes on the basis of something. Uh, Romans uh, 1.28, after speaking about the evils of mankind, Paul says that we did not see fit, same word, see fit to acknowledge God. We didn't think it was the right thing to do after evaluation. Other times in the scriptures, this word has both shades of meaning. Uh, testing in order to prove something or, 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 the, or evaluating the outcome based on experience, that sort of thing. And that's what I think Paul means in using this word in this text. He is, he is referring both to the testing and the outcome of testing. Paul is talking about coming to the conclusion on the basis of experience. And the idea is this. When our love abounds when we're loving more and more and more, when it is buffeted by knowledge and discernment, the result is holy living. The result is love overflowing into wise, righteous action that honors God. And no one, no one with a redeemed, regenerated heart can live that life and fail to see it as the best way to live. No one who feels the, the, the peace of conscience, that the joy before the Lord, the fruit of harmonious relationships, the benefits of mercy and kindness to one another can fail to see that it is superior to a life of sin and selfishness and darkness. No one can fail to call it, to use Paul's word in the text, that which is excellent. And that's the point. What the Lord wants here is our enthusiastic approval of godliness. In this prayer, Paul isn't wanting the church just to do the right things. If that was what he wanted, he could have said that. He could have said, I want, you to be, uh, I want you to love and be wise so that you do what is excellent. 
No, the Lord wants more than a good performance out of us. He wants our wholehearted approval of a godly life. He wants us to taste and see that the righteousness of a righteous life is so much better than the dead, sin-stained lives that we used to live. He wants us to know that living in keeping with his will for man is infinitely superior compared to living the way that we want. And brothers and sisters, as we do this, as we, as we taste and see that the law of the Lord is good, as we experience the joy of godly living over sin, we're, we should find ourselves wanting more and more and more. We will find that the way of life that used to delight us, those sins that used to captivate us, will seem darker and drearier by comparison. As we cry out with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law, we will undoubtedly press on in pursuing more love and more wisdom, which is absolutely the point. The Lord wants our wholehearted approval of a godly life so that we might ever make progress in that life. I'm not promising perfection or anything of the sort. It is absolutely something that happens, hopefully in God's grace, more and more and more over time. But that's the goal. The Lord wants our wholehearted approval of a godly life so that we might ever make progress in living that life. Because make, make no mistake about it, sin will make us promises. It will promise convenience, such as cheating or stealing to get ahead. It will promise the avoidance of pain or embarrassment, such as lying to avoid having to suffer the consequences of something that we did. It will, it will promise pleasure or excitement or fun, such as engaging in adultery or pornography. But whatever, whatever sin promises... When we experience living a godly life, we will know that what God's will is is always what is best, what is superior, and what is excellent by comparison. Even if it comes at a cost. Even if it comes at a cost. Even if it means suffering scorn or mocking from a world that doesn't understand why you don't love the things that they do. Even if it means potentially losing everything and sitting in prison for preaching Christ as Paul was when he wrote this letter. Even if it means death at the hands of a hostile world. We never settle for second best, regardless of the consequences, when we live our lives in accordance with God's world. Now, fortunately, even if there are consequences here, even if they are severe, a day is coming where everything will be set right. And that's where Paul goes next in the second half of verse 10. And the fourth element of the practical Christian life on display in this prayer. Now, verse 10 concludes with the words, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And in these words, we see that fourth element of the practical Christian life, namely hope. Our love, our wisdom, our approval of God's righteous will, they all lead here. This is, in a sense, the climax of the prayer. This is the climax of the display or the summary of the practical Christian life. Being pure and blameless for the day of Christ is the intended result of everything that we have seen so far. It is the ultimate aim of this prayer. The ultimate aim of this prayer. And that goal is to be pure and blameless now for the day of Christ. Now, if that jars anyone if me saying we can be pure and blameless now seems wrong somehow. Let me clarify that this does not mean to be perfect or without sin. 
Um, if it helps, an analogy is kind of how we use the word godly, right? When we say that's a godly man or woman, we don't mean that they are, you know, uh, akin to God in behavior. No, we mean that their life substantially accords with what, they, what we find in God's word, that they're sin- sincere, largely unhypocritical in their love, that sort of thing. In fact, you can, I think, think about being pure and blameless in something of an analogous context. Later on in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul says something similar to being pure and blameless. There in verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So yes, the goal is to be pure and blameless now, and that happens when we are practicing everything that we have been talking about so far in this prayer. Abounding love, deepening knowledge, increasing in discernment, enthusiastically delighting in God's will for our lives. The person whose life looks like that can be rightly called pure and blameless. But notice, notice that the, 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 the goal isn't just to live this pure and blameless life. We are to pursue being pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We are to be pure and blameless now for that day. And the sense is that our holy living now, our being pure and blameless now, is anticipatory of the day of Christ. Our goal is to be pure and blameless until that day which if you use a New American Standard, that's actually how they translate this preposition, to be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. But we are, our goal is to be pure and blameless until that day because of that day. And in the text, the focus is, is a little bit more actually on the day of Christ. The day of Christ, as hopefully we all know, it's the return of Jesus and his second coming, and it'll be a glorious, joyous day for those that are looking forward to Jesus' return. The day of Christ is the day that the that the world will be purged from the, I'm sorry, that we will be purged from the presence of indwelling sin. It'll be the day when the sheep are separated from the goats and evil is eradicated forever. It's the day when the curse on creation will end and there will be no more sorrow, no more tears. It's the day when we will become in physical reality what we already are in Jesus Christ. But most importantly, more importantly, it is the day that our Savior returns for us. It's the day when we get to see God as he is and we get to dwell with our beloved forever. Now, these amazing blessings and more will be ours when Jesus returns for us. And so Paul is anticipating, assuming, directing that we are longing for that day, that we are pining for that day. Now, please note, I didn't say looking forward to. I said longing. Looking forward to doesn't do this day justice. I'm I'm looking forward to the fall. I'm looking forward to going to Apple Hill. I'm looking forward to eating pumpkin-flavored things in a couple of months. That's not what we're talking about here. The day of Christ is something fundamentally different. The day of Christ is something that should be constantly in our view. It should color how we look at buying houses, getting married, how we spend our time, and every other facet of our lives. We don't merely look forward to that day. We live for that day. It is the sun in our sky. You can't get away from it. You can't get around it. It impacts everything that we do. That is what the day of Christ should mean to us. And Paul's point is, just as we are longing or ought to be longing for that day, so too should we be making it our aim to live now in light of it. That's what being pure and blameless for the day of Christ is all about. We who are longing for a day where sin should be no more should, of course, 
try to live consistent with that longing as long as we draw breath. We who are excited to see the face of our Holy Father should, of course, try to live as children without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Quoting again from chapter 2. We who yearn to be with our beloved should, of course, try to live as a bride worthy of his return. The Christian life is a life lived in hope. And that hope drives how we live while we wait for it. And while we patiently wait for that day, to paraphrase Paul in Ephesians 4.1, we're to live worthy of it. Taking it back to the language of our text, to be, we are to be pure and blameless as we await the day when we will gladly bow the knee before our God and King. Now, on the off chance that I am accidentally giving some folks a, a false hope, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say if... if you're in this room or you're listening and you've not repented of your sins, you have not trusted in the substitutionary death and sinless life of Jesus Christ, there's a word of warning that needs to be interjected here. As much as those who are trusting in Christ are looking forward to Jesus' return, this will not be a happy day for everyone. In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul is going to say that on the day that Christ comes back, every, every knee will bow. And those who love and await the return of Jesus will bow in joy and gratitude. But those who have not put their faith in Christ, who persist in their sins and rebellion, will bow in defeat and the terror of final judgment. So, I want anyone to walk out of here with false hope. If, If this is you, I would plead with you now, today, while you have a chance, take this opportunity to repent and to put your trust in Jesus. Do not let it become too late. Moving on, I said at the beginning of this fourth section that this is the ultimate aim of this prayer, this being pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And that may seem a little odd, considering we've got a whole verse left to go. Um, And so in, in verse 11, as we get to this fifth and final element of Paul's prayer, we need to see that this is not a new directive. This is a call to dependence. It is a call to faith. The Fifth and final element of the Christian life in this prayer, in verse 11, is all about faith. Now, in this verse, Paul concludes his prayer with the words, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As we finish our time by looking at these words, we're going to see what the apostle is doing here is powerfully pointing us back to Christ. This concluding verse is ultimately all about making us see our dependence on Jesus for everything that we have been exhorted to do this morning. Now, as we're looking at this, first thing to notice is that it does not read like a complete sentence, right? It looks like it's a continuation of something, and that's exactly because that's what it is. Verse 11 cannot be read by itself. It, uh, refer- the word filled refers back to what was said earlier in the prayer, namely, so that you might be pure and blameless. So, uh, so that you might be pure and blameless, having been filled, is kind of how you ought to read that. In verse 11, Paul is explaining where the power to be pure and blameless ultimately comes from. We can be pure and blameless in our lives here because we have been. Done deal, not repeated one time. That's how Paul is using the word filled here. We have been 
one time done deal, filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus. So what's happening here is, is on the surface, as you and I live the, the practical Christian life, being pure and blameless is going to look like everything we talked about. It's going to look like fighting the fight to love more, uh, waking up every morning, digging into the scripture, uh, uh, actively working to perceive the world rightly, deepening our appreciation and our love for God's righteous commands. And while that might be what it looks like from our perspective, Paul is saying is that there's a more profound reality that's happening under the surface. And that's what verse 11 is about. Paul wants us to see that our godly living comes through what God has already done in us through Christ. And he's alluding to something here that he expects this church to understand, something fundamental about the Christian life and the Christian identity. And specifically, he's referring to the fact that we are not what we once were. We are new creations in Christ. In saving us, part of what God did was to put us to death and to join us to Christ. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When God saves a person, that person dies and is made to participate in Jesus' own resurrected life. And that isn't a metaphor. That's not a word picture. That's not a neat way of talking about having a different perspective on life in the world. It's a fundamental change that happens when God saves someone. Listen to how Paul speaks of this in Galatians 2.20. There he says, It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. When we came to saving faith, there was, there was a death that occurred. But God didn't leave us in that state. He made us participate in the very life of Jesus such that we can say with Paul, it's no longer Jason Kenny who lives in this body. It is Jesus that lives here. The life that animates his body is somehow, emphasizing that word somehow, Jesus' life. And if that confuses you, that's okay. Join the club. I'm in the same boat as you. This is one of the most profound doctrines in the the entire Bible. It's hard to understand. It's hard to articulate. And what's important for our text this morning is that we realize that we are not what we were and we're not who we were. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that we are his workmanship. We are his created product, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are new creations in Christ. Every single person who has trusted in Christ is a new creation in Christ. And Paul is saying it is precisely because we died, because we are not what we once were, because we are united, joined to Christ, because it's no longer we who live, but Christ that lives in us. It is precisely for that reason that we can live in a way that is pure and blameless. The fount or the source of every good impulse, every Proper motivation, every desire to do the least good thing is our being in Christ. It's this new life that we have in him. So taking it back to the text, when we feel love, where does that come from? I wasn't loving, I really was not loving before Christ. When I, when I wake up in the morning and I, I, I you know, wipe the sleep from my eyes and fight the temptation to go play on my phone and instead go pray and be with God in his word, where does that desire come from? It comes from our new reality. It comes from who we are now in Christ. And that's what Paul is ultimately saying in verse 11. We, are, we already have everything we need for life and godliness through our union with Jesus. Paul wants us to see that the power to do everything that we've talked about so far in verses 9 and 10 comes from what God has already done for us in Christ. And there are three very important reasons why Paul wants them and why the Lord wants this church to understand this dynamic as best we can. 
Now first, and most explicitly in the text, because glory is at stake. Those are the last few words in verse 11. With glory to God. If our love comes from Christ, then to God be the glory when we love. But second, Paul doesn't want this church to try to do verses 9 and 10, and neither should we, relying on ourselves. That's either going to end up in us being puffed up or in despair, depending on how honest we are with ourselves. No, Paul's point in penning verse 11 is he wants them to look to Jesus as their complete Savior, as the one who not only stood in their place as a substitute on the cross, who not only is their imputed righteousness before God, but who is also the source of any hope for godly living as well. And that is a direct line into the third and pivotal reason why Paul is penning verse 11, because it is only through the total and unabashed dependence on Jesus that we grow in the Christian life. Now, we could look at a million texts on this, but just one is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And there Paul says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It is through seeing and savoring Jesus Christ that we are transformed. In fact, we can tie our growth in every element of the Christian life that we've seen in this prayer back to focusing on Jesus and what he has done for us. Do you, want to live, do you want to love more? If you do, reflect on what Jesus has done for you and how you were dead in your trespasses and sins when he did it. If you want to grow in wisdom, reflect on the Lord's teaching and his conduct and the words of his apostles. Do you want to increase your longing for the day of Christ? Focus on his love for you and the fullness of salvation that he is bringing when he, is re- when he returns. It is by seeing and savoring Jesus Christ that we have every element of this Christian life made to flourish. We are to depend on Jesus in faith. We are to to look to him as our all-sufficient Savior and treasure. And in doing so, we grow. And so Paul gives us verse 11. Again, it's why he's penning verse 11. Having covered love, wisdom, holy living, and hope, rather than giving a new directive, Paul points this church to trust in the utter sufficiency of the salvation that is through Jesus Christ. So that God gets the glory and that we are empowered to do those earlier things. Well, brothers and sisters, as we finish this morning, I think a fitting place is to end just on those final words in verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. As we have hopefully learned and benefited from this short but rich summary of the Christian life, as we Hopefully today, go forth in love and wisdom and holy living and hope, depending on Christ in faith. Let us do so, whatever degree we make progress, humbly giving all glory and praise to where it belongs, to the God who loves us and saves us so completely. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this delightful picture of what it means to live a Christian life in this text. We thank you that you would briefly and powerfully summarize it for us, that we can see the picture of it. We know that there are many theological truths and practical things that are not included in this passage. We know that. But at the same point in time, Lord, I pray that you would let us take what we've, we've seen and heard today. May it take root in our lives. May our love evermore abound. May it deepen. May it widen. May it overflow. May it be buffeted with knowledge and with all discernment. May we 
enthusiastically, wholeheartedly reckon a life lived in accordance with your will is better than anything that we lived before. May we be pure and blameless now, anticipation for the day when our beloved comes back for us. And may we do all of this knowing that it is only possible in and through Jesus Christ, that it is not of us, it is not from us, we don't do it in our own strength, that he is the source and the fount of everything that we need. And him is is life and godliness complete, Father. I pray, Lord, that we would do this more and more in Christ's name. Amen.